Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Surrounded, low on supplies, and on the verge of a surrender they didn't see coming, the soldiers of Argentina wrote home in the waning days of the Falklands War, telling tales of hardship that bore no resemblance to the sunny propaganda woven by the military junta back in Buenos Aires. We get these up-close, raw, personal accounts for the first time in Last Letters from Stanley, the unpublished Argentine battle for the Falklands. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Author Show. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and a special tip of the hat. Whoa, I didn't actually do it. There we go. For those of you watching on our YouTube channel, our guide on this trip to the bottom of the world is Ricky D. Phillips, who we welcome back to the History Author Show after Ricky joined us to discuss his book, The First Casualty, the untold story of the Falklands War. Now in last letters from Stanley, and Stanley, by the way, is the capital of the Falklands territory, Ricky brings us the stories of the young men who carried the hopes of their nation across the South Atlantic to what they called Las Malvinas, islands they'd never been to but had been taught to revere as rightfully part of Argentina. Author Ricky D. Phillips is a bestseller in the UK and USA on subjects ranging from ancient history to the Napoleonic Wars, but the Falklands conflict is one he's best known for and respected for by people on both sides. In our first conversation, I likened his passion to author Shelby Foote, American viewers will remember him from many Civil War documentaries where his classic Southern drawl really drew you in. He loved to tell stories, and he hadn't gone through the college-university mill that had drained all that passion out of him. So that's how I always think of Ricky D. Phillips. You can visit him at his military history blog, which is called Making History, or find him at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can find me as well. Okay, now that we've bundled up for the cold climate of that lonely, starving outpost off South America's tip, let's join Ricky D. Phillips and the Argentine soldiers writing true accounts of a losing war in Last Letters from Stanley. And here we are, joined by Ricky D. Phillips from Edinburgh, Scotland. He's the author of Last Letters from Stanley, the unpublished Argentine battle for the Falklands. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Ricky. Thank you very much, Dean. It's lovely to be back on the show as well. Thank you. Well, I want to start where your book does, and that's with the cover of Last Letters from Stanley. It looked to me at first like an illustration, and I was drawn into it, looking at it, trying to see some of the details, but it's from a photograph. So tell that story for us. So we start the interview where your book starts and judge this book by its cover. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, well, now, uh, this might be hard, of course, for your uh, listeners on iHeartRadio, but hopefully people are catching this on, on the YouTube because they can see it. Um, so I've I got it here. It's on your shelf, of course, behind you. But uh, so this is the cover of, of Last Letters from Stanley. And now your viewers can see just over your shoulder my uh, my first Putin's War book, of course, First Casualty. And that's got a very, you know, it pops. It's, it's a really sort of hard-hitting cover. It's very ominous. Guns and Roses is an example I've used quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. The first casualty, that's appetite for destruction. You know, that's you, you see appetite 
as a as a album and you go yeah that looks good you know and you put yeah, it on pick that and up. you get that it's <laughs> you know, it, it's explosive it hits use your illusion was a slower pace of an album george martin would say a collection of songs is not an album you have to tell a story with an album <laughs> and music is a very very good analogy a book is an album pretty much you know um and so i wanted something different and use your illusion it was a lot more muted. It even had someone sort of sat down writing this letter, which you can see these guys are. But it's a lot more of an intelligent album. It's a, it's a lot, you know, there's a lot more thought goes into Use Your Illusion than there is an appetite, which is just, you know, hard hitting. And I wanted that. I liked that idea. Now, so this, this, this picture here. So this is a, originally it was a photograph by a, a Argentina's, uh, war photographer, a lovely man called Eduardo Anibal Rotondo. And so this, this chap here is a man called Sergio Grabchuk um, of the 10th Mechanized Brigade. And he's, he's a very, very nice man. Um, I've spoken to him. His, his friend here um, pa passed away uh, just a couple of years ago. But what I really liked about this, you can see they're reading this letter. Now, this is, of course, a book all about letters soldiers letters letters from soldiers are hugely important you know um historians like me can tell a story generals and officers can tell stories but the regular soldier you know and you're we're still finding letters from the first world war the second world war many other conflicts and always the letters of the soldiers home give us more of a dynamic they they put us on the ground with the men and you can see that Sergio here is he's reading a letter. Now, maybe this is a letter he's he's written home and he's just seeing how it sounds. More than likely, this is a probably a letter from his his family. Um, so you've got this, this letter. You've also got just just down here. You've got his uh, this is his, his food bowl. As you can see, it's, it's completely empty. Um, and it kind of gives the idea because a lot of these Argentine soldiers were truly starving. They were very, very hungry people. It's sort of paints this picture now this could also be um Sergio may maybe his friend hasn't received a letter home a lot of these guys in the books and a lot of the veterans that you speak to said you know the power of the mail the power of receiving a letter from home and, and any of your your listeners uh or subscribers who who are ex-military who have served on deployment overseas will know absolutely what I'm talking about the the power of just a letter from home um, to give you hope that there's something to go back to, you know, that this, this hell on earth, wherever you are, isn't it, you know, there's, there's normality back home and letters are so, so important, but also there's another angle. Again, if you look at this, and I love this cover because it was an original photograph. It's been painted for me by a very well-known, excellent Edinburgh artist, very good friend of mine called Ray Rushbrook who worked on some of my other books on Hannibal as well. And I, I really wanted Ray to do this because I know what he can do. You know, Ray is a, a wonderful, wonderful artist. And he really captured this. I mean, the more you look at it, the sort of the depth and the textures, I have the original painting hanging above my writing desk. And every time I look at it, it just draws you in with the various colors and textures. Um, and that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to draw you into this story and these men's stories. And this, this could even be that Sergio might be reading his friend's letter for him, perhaps because his friend can't read. So many of these 
Argentine veterans couldn't actually read letters home and they had to get other people to read them for them. I could ask Sergio. I could just ask him. Um, and I don't want to. I love the idea of not knowing. I love this dimension of, you know, it's, it, it's art. It's subjective. It's what it means to you, you know. So I like that idea. It's yeah. like the the Great War. We we look back at that. There were so many guys because there was such huge literacy that those guys were able to read. And you'd say there in the trench, let me read your letters. You read mine. Letter writing is such a part of warfare and part of the human experience. As our pubs, by the way, that's where your story yep. starts. I love that you get this bundle of singed letters while you're sitting there in a pub. Yeah. And then you have to go about that hard work of paying respect to these men. You're not just going to throw them out there. So there's a lot involved. This is not a book. I wanted to make clear to people watching and listening, just one letter after another dated, signed, dated, signed. You tell your story that you just started sharing with us there. Last letters from Stanley is not just you went, read somebody's mail and posted it all. It's, it's really a journey you take to bring these to publication. It really is. I mean... Senor Rotondo took that photograph and originally, you know, I asked him, do you mind the second I saw that photograph and you can find it online. Um, if you just, you just put Sergio Grabchuk Malvinas, which is of course what Argentines call the Falklands, put that in, you'll probably find that photograph. And there's a second photograph where just sort of moments later where they're sort of standing up pointing to something. I don't know what, um, but I asked Senor Rotondo, are, are you okay for me to use this photograph? And he said, yes. He said, so long as Sergio is fine, um, then that's okay with me. But what happened, unfortunately, as a result of a few things, <clears throat> is that in Argentina, anything to do with somebody's mail, um, it's, it's very, very legal. You know, you can't publish someone else's letter. You can't read someone else's letter in Argentina. And so there, there was the idea that there could be a legal issue, shall we say, by implication. They've got quite a suing culture there right now. And um, there, there were some worries after consulting some Argentine lawyers that there might, there might be a, a legal issue if he put, allowed me to put the, his photo on there, the original photograph. Um, and you, you can sometimes, you can still find it um, as a, as a concept art, uh, somewhere online, but I tried to take it down because I didn't want to give the wrong impression. Um, but, you know, he was worried that by saying yes to the photo, he might be, it might be implied somehow that he had um, endorsed the, the project or the publication of, of these people's letters or what have you. So, yeah, we got around it. And, and I knew Ray Rushbrook as a, as a wonderful artist. I knew he could really capture that and do it justice. So um, it just hits on so many different levels. I really like it. It draws you in and it tells you this is not like casualty was a beat-em-up. Casualty is an action book. Yes, it really happened. It's an amazing story. And of course, you've read both of them, Dean, you know. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very different pace, but it's a lot more involved. It's a lot more emotional and it's a lot more personal. And that was something I really wanted to get across, you know. And, and of course, but coming from a pub, I should say, if people sit there and think, yeah, a book started in a pub, the Scottish Enlightenment, which changed the world, started in pubs. So All great ideas, too. In, Most in great Scot ideas. In Scotland, everything. Oh, yeah, we all have great ideas in the pub. 
that never lie. Yeah, we all put the world to rights and then you, you know, wake up next morning with a sore head and you you <laughs> don't remember all those wonderful ideas. But the world changed ridiculously with the Scottish Enlightenment here as we are here in Scotland. And that changed in pubs. Um, so what better place to start any story in Scotland? All good stories in Scotland. If there's not a pub involved, there is no story involved. And in this case, this was a good one. Also, the American Revolution that started all in our taverns here. So see, from you, from your perspective over there, good and bad things can be done in taverns. I, I forget the exact term for them, for the revolution, for the laboratories, the gardens of the revolution of, of the American Revolution. That's where it all happened, partially because of letters. If you wanted to get a letter mailed to you, we didn't have numbers on our houses in 1776. So you would send an email to, or rather send a mail, a letter. <laughs> an email, that'd be good. To what was then called Maybe's Tavern. It is now the old 76 house, which is a place that I've gone many times, did an interview. They held Benedict Arnold's conspirator there. George Washington took his meals there. Hamilton, all the major guys, major generals in the Revolutionary War for the U.S. You'd send your letter to the pub because you know the person was going to be going there and there was no mail service. And so this is what you would do. And that became your center of town. So it makes complete sense here. And, and of course, also you, the, we can only just say that America has obviously not improved since then, because when it was under under British rule, you just went to the pub and it all worked. <laughs> it all worked perfectly well. You didn't need to throw that tea in the river, you see. <laughs> <laughs> you just, I should have gone to the pub. <laughs> and and it, was this, it was the Stamp Act, by the way, but that wasn't stamps like we mail letters with. But anyway, for last letters from Stanley, you... Talk about that being in the pub. And I like that because it's very personal shows again that this book is more than just the letters, but also you want to make this a story where you don't say, aha, I have these letters. I could just publish them. In fact, you talk to a Falklands veteran and fellow historian, Ian Gardner, who yeah. I believe is your neighbor. And you said that he asked you about that. I don't know if I would, if I would publish these, how are you going to balance it? So you do indeed balance that your duties as a historian and as an author, but also just as a human being, as somebody who doesn't want some fellow to in Argentina, one of these veterans to pick up a letter from 32 years ago and get slammed and get paraded around as something of a curiosity back home by, by their government. What, what do you do to go about finding these men? Well, I mean, so there's a, there's a few things in there. So firstly, of course, um, the letters were, were, brought to me were given to me and and you know do you know what these are and and you know i i looked and i can read spanish and i looked and i thought wow this this is huge this is absolutely huge to give an idea of the importance of finding these letters so imagine it's, it's june the 14th it's the day the falcons war has ended there is smoke there is flame there is you know bits of tattered anything floating around everywhere it's it's hell on earth Stanley, the capital of the Falklands, is hell on earth. There are thousands of Argentine veterans. Suddenly, that they're, they're stunned. You know, the firing has, has has ended. We think we've surrendered. We don't even know. The British are, you know, you had British suddenly joyriding through the town in trucks and tanks and everything. Go, we've won, and they're like, um, have we? Have we not? And suddenly, you're prisoners and you're going home. And um, there were thousands of these letters everywhere. Um, most of them were binned, burned, got rid of. The Falkland Islanders, you know, the clear up that the Falklands took, when I say years, I mean only in the last few months 
had they just got rid of the last landmine on the Falklands that the Argentines put there. Wow. And they, the, the beaches and loads of places were completely heavily mined. Um, you know, used, there's still uh, debris and detritus of war all over the place in the Falklands. And it's a permanent reminder, but as much as they could get rid of, they did. So these letters basically don't exist unless, unless they went home on the plains out of Stanley, you know, during the occupation, people know about them. But the survivors, the ones that didn't get out, they're very, very rare. The last one they found, uh, they found in 2012. And um, ironically enough, actually, since this has come out, they found one more. And it's just one. But this was a whole bundle that I got, and they were all from the same unit. And that's unheard of. That is absolutely unheard of. And each one, in a weird way, it, it told the war in a series of snapshots. Um, and each man, it was almost like he was like he teed it up for his own personal essay. You could write a series of essays about the Fultons, and these guys just did it. And, and in the weirdest way, all of the letters just came out in the order that they're published in, which is it's just one of those things of, you know, twists of fate that you sit there and think this is supposed to be. Now, these letters were brought to me by a Falkland Islander, and she wanted them that they basically, after the war, for whatever reason, uh, her brother had picked them up and put them in an old shoebox, forgotten about them. The letters traveled around the world. Um, they went to Australia. The brother sadly passed away, cleared out his effects, found these things. I'm, because of First Casualty, of course, First Casualty is on every coffee table in, in Stanley. Um, so brought them to me and said, what can we do with these? And because of my connections with the Argentine military, of course, again, through a lot of people from Stanley, uh, from First Casualty, the idea was, said, you know, please look at them, see if there's anything historically useful. But what I want, and this is such a huge thing, I want these letters to get back to their original authors or their intended recipients, because we don't even know if these men made it out alive. Um, and this is a huge thing because you, you can't imagine, you know, and if, if you imagine that you there in New York woke up one day and a country had attacked you and placed you under occupation, you know, under military rule, and then someone else is having to come and bomb and shell um, them from literally from your streets. I mean, you know, nobody was safe here to try and get these guys out. You lived under this occupation. These other people are saying, no, you there in, in New York or what have you, you're going to belong to our country and you're going to, your national anthem is our national anthem. And the Stars and Stripes is not your flag. This is your flag. You'd feel pretty strongly about that afterwards, you know? And for someone to come and say, look, we all suffered in that war, all of us. I don't agree with the cause you fought for, but we're all people. And everyone, British, Falkland Islander and Argentine needs closure. It's been 39 years since the war as we speak. Everyone needs something, some solace, some closure, some something. And this really is the cornerstone of the book it's a book. Yes, it's about war. It's about war. There's lots of war in it. It's a very good read if you like war. But it's a book about humanity, first and foremost, that if you take away the uniforms and the flags and even the cause, 
that everyone went through the same war. That is the one thing, you know, everyone went through the same war. Everyone took the same damage. And a lot of the damage was psychological. You know, a lot of veterans have committed suicide. A lot of people, including the Falkland Islanders, have post-traumatic stress disorder. They're still getting through today. And the idea was that this could bring closure. And I asked if I could turn this into a book after a while. I was looking at these and I thought, this is incredible. I need a bit more on these men. I need to translate the letters and then I need to get that checked. You know, my I, I can read European Spanish. My you know, Argentine Spanish is different. There's certain co colloquialisms and place names and things. Scribble down. Yeah, Scribble you know. Down, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I had to get it checked and rechecked and rechecked. And then so we took these as a this series of snapshots, which literally was the Argentine War from start to finish, and filled in the blanks around them with the Argentine veterans who were around these men. And I'm telling what they're explaining and what they're describing as they go and why these letters are important and what they're showing. And they are very, very important in many ways. You know, they show a lot of things that we didn't know and a lot of subjects that we go into. So I decided to do this. And of course, that there is this point of morality. Now, you mentioned, of course, Ian Gardner. Ian Gardner was a, a captain of 4-5 Commando Royal Marines who fought at the Battle of Two Sisters, which is in this book. And Ian is a neighbour. I met him. In fact, Ian came to the first ever outing of First Casualty. Before it was a book, I did it as a sort of lecture just to get my, my elevator speech, as you would say, right, and to gauge the, the opinions. And um, Ian was there. And in fact, he, he came with another man we mentioned in our last interview about First Casualty, the historian Angus Constam. They were sat next to each other. So no pressure here. Ian's a very, very nice man and a very, very famous author and historian on the war. And I spoke to Ian about it. And originally I'd asked, do you want to, to put in a foreword, you know, because uh, I'd like something from someone to say, look, here's, here's what it was like for our enemies and here's what it was like for us fighting them. And it was Ian that raised the point about morality, of course. Ian said, you know, he said, Look, I, I would read this through sheer voyeurism, he said, but I'll be honest, if it was one of my letters and someone else had published them, so I'd be bloody annoyed. And I said, no, do you know, I never considered it. And it's something now I mention it in the book and it's, it's not something I've sort of mentioned often other than in the book. I have Asperger's syndrome and Asperger's is, is high functioning autism, you would call it. It makes you very, very good at sitting down and writing a book and focusing on it and getting to the truth and getting all the details out there, but it creates certain blind spots. And what, what are the blind spots I have sometimes is how other people might feel about something. So there's me thinking, well, I'm doing a great thing. Doing a great thing. And it, it is a great thing, but it never really occurred to me. It, it, to, to someone who doesn't have Asperger's, you say, how could you not know that? But I didn't. I genuinely didn't know when I sat there and thought, ah, yes, a point of morality. So Ian said, look, I, I don't want to be rude. I'd love to, but I'm going to say no. I, if it has a bad reaction, I, I don't want to be, um, I, I don't want to be hauled over the coals for it. So, you know, was it anything else? Yes, I would love to, but not, do you mind if I say no? And I said, no, not at all. And of course I went home 
and read and you've read it, you know, and I, I started writing a point on morality and I wrote it freehand. I wrote it just as it occurred to me and I never edited that. So I never changed it. I never printed it, printed it up or anything. I wrote a point of morality and said, look, when is too soon? You know, if these were letters from First World War soldiers, well, they're, they're all dead. You know, I, I would certainly find the relatives afterwards because that's that's a duty. It's a duty of care. You don't have to, but of course I would. Um, but I would, the guys have passed on. There's nothing, you know, no one's going to come knocking at my door having a go at me. Um, soldiers from the Second World War, probably the same. Um, but again, some might be alive. Another duty of care. But the Falklands War is only 39 years ago. And I thought, well, I, I don't know who's alive, who made it out, who didn't. The way a lot of these soldiers were treated when they got home was shockingly bad. A lot of them atrociously treated by the Argentine government and, and by the people. And a lot, of, a lot of guys got lost in the system through, you know, alcohol and drugs and crime. A lot of them very sadly committed suicide. And then you get this sort of extra level, which, again, the readers don't always see this. I don't want, uh, you know, some aged Argentine mother picking up a letter from her son who she's not seen for 39 years going, dear mum, you know, and there was a genuine fear in me that, you know, I could cause a vast amount of harm with this. Um, and even getting the letters back, of course, because in Argentina, these guys would be, it's a big thing for them. You know, if you find a, a letter from an Argentine soldier, I said how rare they are. Uh, these are treated like, imagine if you found a, another page of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which they did recently, or a, a page of the Bible or something nobody knew existed. One of these letters is like that in Argentina, and I've got a stack of them. And um, What I didn't want, what I couldn't have, is these men thrust upon a stage, quite literally, handed these letters, and I think any veteran would, but Argentines are very, you know, they're very outwardly emotional people, which of course the, the British certainly are known for being a bit more reserved. I think it's a very private moment when you get that letter back. I didn't want it to be undignified. I didn't want a bunch of veterans being put up there on a stage for the, the public edification and, you know, crying and weeping and going into a, you know, having to deal with this avalanche of emotions with everyone watching. I just, I, to me, it was very undignified. Wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Absolutely. I think, you know, had I allowed that to happen, and given it to the wrong people. And, and this is something you don't see in the book, of course, is all the, the background work with British ambassador to Argentina, Mark Kent, and his secretary, Harriet Beach, and the Argentine defense attaches. Bear in mind, it's very hard because people in Argentina can't even handle these letters. You know, the defense attache could, certain other people can't. Certain people who could or would were, when I did my research, the kind of people who would thrust these men on that stage, which I didn't want. And of course, the letters had to be with the men before the book came out, because I couldn't have a man reading his letter in a book or being told about yeah, it no kidding. on the internet. Um, the level of care and consideration going into this is huge. And I wanted those men to be able to deal with those emotions privately, on their own or with their families, and, you know, if they then choose to come out and they choose to stand on the stage and say, yes, this was me. Brilliant. If they choose to come out and say, 
I think that Ricky D. Phillips shouldn't have done that. And I'm here's what I think of him. They have a right to say that also. A duty to the story and to tell oh. their side, especially after you just told the first casualty. And that's something I admired about it. And I said that when we spoke that you do have a dedication to even handedly telling both sides from that soldier's perspective. These guys, as you write, often the ones who did not get to fire back, but who endured it. They're, they're the heroes. They're the ones who you would admire, not the ones necessarily have a chest full of medals, but some of these fellows that I think I'm getting close to another question, which is about how the men we meet here in Last Letters from Stanley, they wipe away this notion that these were all just stormtroopers in Star Wars or something like that, where they were just there to fall down. You, you, you hit them over the head with a pan or you shoot them once and they just, they're all down. So th that robs them of honor too. So you say that, that that's a common misconception in the UK, that the Argentine forces were just a bunch of scared little kids who ran away and you walked in there, raised the Union Jack and they all laid down their arms. So Tell us that. Who are the soldiers we meet here? And do so by, I think you're going to read something from one of the letters for us to give us an idea. Who are the real men behind those caricatures? The scared little kids who ran away. Now, this isn't a, so much a British image per se. It's an image that Argentina almost had beforehand. So after the war, Argentina was very, very angry. This was a war they were told they were winning. You know, and if you... There's a, a lot in, in Last Letters um, which, in which we talk about the, the propaganda. The guys on the front line are told they are winning this war and they believe it. You know, the, um, the, they, they still laugh about uh, Gente magazine, one of the big Argent Argentine magazines. Um, these two big headlines, we are winning. And then the, about a week later, we are still winning. You know, and, and of course they weren't. And they genuinely believed they were winning this war. They were reading day after day after day these stories of, you know, all these sunken ships and, you know, the, the amount of times I have to inform Argentine people, you know, you did not sink our aircraft carrier HMS Invincible. You know, that's still the biggest conspiracy theory of the war. They still believe they sank HMS Invincible. I've stood on Invincible, you know, with, and I was in Portsmouth. My, my feet were dry. Um, but old myths die hard and a lot of them, you know, these guys genuinely believed they were winning and suddenly, oh, we've lost. And the people at home, what do you mean they lost? What happened? And the Argentine junta was very much about, you know, um, oh, blame the soldiers. They're terrible cowards. They'd gone off with all the flags waving and everyone going crazy. And they came in by the back door, you know, we, they were landed in Argentina in British ships, in British ships that their people have been told were sunk, <laughs> which kind of is going to upset everyone, in remote ports and slowly through, a, they were given a fattening up, fattening up program because they were all grossly underweight. Um, a, a few even starved to death out there. And um put back into society and of course the the problem is they they were angry men you know and and the, the public was angry but they were angry with the guys and they were saying you know can i have my job back you know i was called up go to war and they said get gautieri to give you a job get out of my sight you know well they would phone up apply for a job and they said were you a soldier in the malvinas yes i was okay we'll call you soon and they would sit at home 
waiting for a call that never came. A lot of these um, undiagnosed and untreated problems that all soldiers have, of course, now, you know, they used to call it shell shock. Now it's, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. It was untreated. They've lost their, their friends. Um, they were very angry. A lot of them, you know, went by way of crime or did something silly and violent, you know, um, a lot went to prison, a lot filtered through the system into sort of drink, drugs, other crimes. Word got around in Argentina, you know, that these these guys don't get a veteran. You know, they're crazy. The guy's going to he's going to do something mad and try and kill himself. And this was the idea. And it was only when you got this this image. We're talking about this image of the scared kids uh, underfed and, you know, virtually armed with sticks and catapults. You know, it was kind of this image comes with this this term, Los Chicos de la Guerra, the boys of the war. Now, this was a, a book by uh, Argentine journalist Daniel Conn, and also a film at the same name, but it's more than that. The term, Los Chicos de la Guerra, it captured the zeitgeist of what was happening in the sort of 1983 and onwards of the soldiers. It was an interview with soldiers, and, you know, there was only a few, and they were of a, a certain type. They'd had a certain level of experience of a certain, you know, much the same thing. And... They were telling this story of, you know, no food and our weapons weren't working and the generals and the colonels didn't know what they were doing and where the hell were the officers and we were just abandoned. We didn't know anything and we were so outclassed. You know, it's about in the book Los Chicos de la Guerra, there's at least three um, occasions where the Argentines just say the British just wiped the floor with us. We, we thought we were good. These guys just, they rolled right over us, you know, but that's what they saw. And that somehow became the whole war. And that wasn't. It was it was a slice of it. You will find this. You will find these terrified teenagers who had some of them had received basically no instruction. Um, and you will find those. But Los Chicos went too far that way. Argentina was angry. They were looking for someone to blame, you know. And they said, don't blame the soldiers. Blame the people who put them there. But slowly, Argentina has stopped sort of feeling sorry for itself. And it created a, a complete sort of opposite image whereby every veteran was a, a proud, um, you know, he was a, a proud Superman standing behind the ragged flag, you know, um, defying all comers. And you, you'd wonder how they lost, you know. Now, you will find that that proud, brave, patriotic hero somewhere if you look at all the argentine histories you'll find that guy somewhere and you'll find the scared youngster who doesn't know which end of the rifle the bullet comes out of you'll find him somewhere but they were sort of on the periphery you know the the bit in the middle was not like that and we, we use the term conscripts a lot to to refer to the argentines even that is kind of wrong because Yes, you had conscripts. You absolutely did. You know, there, there was a, a guy um, a, a few weeks ago uh, I heard from who was literally grabbed by the military police and conscripted while stood there at his father's funeral. He was literally taken away and conscripted. Um, and many of these guys were just put in a uniform, put on a plane, dumped on the islands. And they were like, where are we? Many of those guys thought they were in Chile. They didn't even realize they were in the Falklands. But that's not, a, that's not, you know, not the, the, the major part. That's not the leaven of the bread. 
the bulk in so many ways, these were guys who had done their year's conscription. So they'd been trained for a year, developed as a unit. Um, these guys, in fact, th these guys who had already served the year conscription, the, the class of 62, as they called them, so that would have been the year they were born, 1962. They were called up in 1982, but they, they'd done their year's conscription. And in this year, they actually had the biggest um, live fire exercises, full brigade level live fire exercises lasting, you know, several days with artillery and helicopters and aircraft and lots of other people joining in. So it was the closest, they were probably the best trained conscripts Argentina had ever turned out. And many of these guys even underwent um, specialist and crash course commando training and things. These were no slouches. They weren't, you know, they weren't good first line troops, the same as say, you know, the Royal Marines or the American unit or our paras or whoever, but the, they were no slouches. They were not silly kids. And of course, most of these guys, they've done their year. They went home. And a few weeks later, it's on the news. Oh, my God. It was a massive surprise. Nobody knew until it had happened. You know, the Malvinas, the, the, their word for the folks, the Malvinas are Argentine. It's, you know, and oh, my God, the, the British aren't going to take this insult, which they genuinely thought we would. They're coming to get them back. And these guys who had done their year, most of them, and you, you read this, of course, I, I know you've read last letters from Stanley as well. Most of these guys, some were sat at home thinking that telephone's going to ring or I'm waiting for a knock on the door. Many guys didn't even wait. They literally went to the barracks and said, what can I do? And they were told, uniform, rifle, get some kit. You know what you're doing. A lot of the younger guys, the new conscripts who had come in, they said, you stay here. You do not know what you're doing. You stay here. We need the experienced men. So these were not conscripts. Technically, they were reservists now. Um, so we, we tend to refer to all Argentine soldiers as the conscripts, and they weren't. Um, over half were reservists. Um, and of course, Argentina didn't just have a conscripted army. You know, they had professionals. They had 601 and 602 commando who were as, as good as our top guys. You know, they, they trained with our top guys. They've been training with the Navy SEALs, a lot of them. The Argentine Marines, they their Marines were technically conscripted, but they had a very different system. And they were top troops. You know, they were good. Um, and they had they had a lot of, you know, their gendarmerie and things like that. They, they had a lot of good professionals. But the majority were conscripted in some way, shape or form. But then, you know, that being said, we've all had relatives in both world wars, I'm sure, who were also conscripted and they did their thing. So these things happen. But the idea that these were terrified little kids we walked over is absolutely not true. And it's an idea that it does them no honour and no justice. It does no honour and no justice to our guys who fought them. If you suggested to a British veteran that all you fought were scared little kids who ran away, um, he'd either laugh at you or punch you because, you know, he, our, guy, our guys were pretty amazed, you know, that these, these conscripts ultimately are putting up a fight. They're not running away. You will find guys who ran away terrified. You will find them. You'll find them in most armies, um, you know, all, all throughout history. But the majority fought beyond 
what we thought they would do, you know, or beyond what they should have been reasonably expected to do. They genuinely stood there and gave as much as they they physically and mentally could. They're not boys, but they're not this gun-toting Arnold Schwarzenegger in his heyday kind of kind of superhero that they are now painted as, you know, that but they're good men. They're not cowards. No, nobody in this book is a coward. I really wanted the reader to feel like they're on that mountain as it's getting dark and to know those British are coming that night and to feel that tingle up the spine. And particularly for the for the UK reader, because the people coming up that mountain are from the UK. And I want I wanted you to forget that. I wanted you to sit there and think, oh, my God, what would I do? <laughs> Where am I going to be? What You know, and. I felt that, and I really wanted to, to convey that, and I, I hope I did so. Absolutely, and everybody at home right now, you're enjoying my conversation about this book, Last Letters from Stanley, The Unpublished Argentine Battle for the Falklands with Ricky D. Phillips. Please visit him at his military history blog. It's called Making History, and you can find him across social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Those pictures add to his story, and I love to see him out there promoting this really important work of history. The British Falkland Islands and British Military Facebook page calls Last Letters from Stanley an incredible new book crammed with fascinating new accounts and some incredible new information based upon the recently discovered letters of a group of Argentine soldiers who tell the Falklands War as it happened. Plus, you can see my endorsement right on the back cover of the book. I called it my most anticipated book of 2021. And Ricky was kind enough to put it on his book cover. That always honors me when, I, when an author will ask me or use something I said there in their promotional material, especially putting it in print. So I definitely had to have Ricky on to talk about this and to get that side that you heard there in that review where we, we respect the men on the other side who are thrust into war by their government I know there was one soldier, he arrives there and he says, he, I think he sees a bottle cap or something and it says made in Britain. And he says, how is this here? I, I thought we were told these were Las Malvinas, that these were Argentine, that the people here wanted us to come to be reunited with, with Argentina. And so you understand that. Many of the things I think American listeners will identify what Ricky is saying here about these Argentine soldiers with what many veterans from Vietnam faced, and not just Vietnam, which we've seen in a million movies, but even after the Great War, which by comparison with something cut and dry, there would be signs hanging up in restaurants, no soldiers allowed. They didn't want you there if you'd, if you'd served in uniform. You had a bad reputation if you'd been soldiering. This is a universal experience that we get here in Last Letters from Stanley. And who cannot sympathize with these men? Speaking of letters, each British serviceman who loses his life in the war he gets a personalized letter from Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. And yet, as you write in Last Letters from Stanley, the Argentine servicemen slain would get no solace. And what is one of the things that with you, when you first read these letters, just sticks in your head and you, you can't get it out because it's such a vivid image? It's very hard because I think each letter has, you know, has its own flavor. But there's, there's certain letters that, that really stuck with me. Um, for, for various reasons, you know, I mean, you've got this uh, one particular guy. He's talking about the visit of the Pope to Argentina, Pope John Paul II. And he came 
And Argentina was going, you know, go, going wild. It was saying, yes, you know, the Pope can bring us peace. Of course, they're a very, very staunchly Catholic nation. Of course, they know the UK is a Protestant nation, but they know that the Pope is a very, very, Pope John Paul was always a very respected man here in the UK. And he'd just been to the UK. And now he was coming to Argentina. And this is the Pope will bring us peace. But nobody really knew how, you know. And there's, there's a, a guy who's talking about it and it said and what may happen then better times may come and hopefully his mediation will end in peace although it's difficult because the two countries with different religions i don't know maybe there's a possibility who who knows i know that they're making an industrial general strike in england because we've been hitting them like a punching bag he says thanks to our lords of the air our, our air force and it's great their home front is cracking how good is that that's something that really strikes me because they had these wall charts of British ships that they were crossing off day by day by day that they were told were sunk. And suddenly, you know, they're not sunk. And in fact, here they are, you know, a lot of them are bringing men home, you know, back to Argentina in a ship they were told was sunk. Most people believed they were winning this war until the moment they lost it. I have a, a good friend, Gustavo, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And now I'm, I'm sure I've got this slightly wrong, this story, but for all intents and purposes, it worked that his his uncle in Madrid on the 14th of June, the day Argentina surrenders, his uncle phones his, his father up and says, so you've lost, you've surrendered. And he said, no, 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 he says, it's, it's all British lies and propaganda. We're winning, he says. <laughs> and he genuinely believed he was winning. There was a, a Gallup poll taken on the 13th and 14th of June, surveying Argentine people in the street. This poll had like sort of 94% or something of Argentine people when asked, you know, will it be a British win, an Argentine win, or will it be a draw stroke mediated solution? Something like 94% of people, including on 14th of June, said Argentina would win. And you can imagine the shock to them when they lost. So that is one sort of very powerful thing. You know, when you when you talk about solace, you know, I, I said to Margaret Thatcher, she didn't have to. It isn't a thing the British do. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher wrote a personal letter to the family of every veteran who was killed. She didn't have to. And in fact, it's, it's wonderful. There was a, a telegram she was going to send to the Argentine president, General Gautieri. She didn't send it. And it was a few days before the final assaults, the, the, so there was three battles, the Battle of Mount Longdon, Two Sisters, and Mount Harriet. Three battles in one night, bowled the Argentines back. And then there was two battles in a sort of a right angle. You know, to the north, we came in at uh, the Battle of Wireless Ridge. And through the middle, we came through the Battle of Tumbledown. And we won both of those, kind of like a, a vice closing. And that finally just squeezed and broke the Argentines back. And just before the, those, this series of sledgehammer blows lands, she writes this letter and she says, very soon the final battles are going to begin. Every man who dies, at least his family can say he died for something. He died for freedom of other people. He died for liberty, for all the things that we hold true. My conscience will be damaged, but it will be intact because I will know that I've done the right thing. What will your conscience say to you? when you are reading the list of casualties and deaths and when you're looking at the families and you're having to send those off, she says, I can live with myself just about, but I can do, can you, you know? And she says, if you want to 
throw in the towel, you can do that. We don't know why, maybe she was advised to, but she never sent that telegram. But you can see the feeling behind what she put. I mean, I'll, I'll read you one letter that's here. This was ironic, actually, because after the all the letters were done, the drafts were all done and everything else, you know, and I was just going into the editing. Three more letters came up. They weren't sort of known. It was like, oh, we've got these as well. And I thought, oh, my God, what do I do with these? Now, these were individual guys. You don't get a lot of who they are or where they are, yeah, where they're from or anything. But one of the things that they're all focusing on um, family, letters home, these letters that aren't getting there. Um, the Argentine people, you know, their families are sending letters. But the problem is that every, in every Argentine school, they got like, you know, 40 school kids per class to sit there and write a letter to my big brother in the Malvinas or something like that in, you know, in crayon or something. And they thought they were doing a good thing. Millions of these letters went out there. Problem is, they took them all, they took them out there. What the men needed was food. What the men needed was letters from home to say, you know, keep going, you're doing all right, you're doing a great job. They weren't getting those because they were getting letters from millions of school kids, which wasn't doing much good for them in, in real terms. There's even a couple of those letters from uh, these, these well-wishers. These aren't children. These are, you know, grown men who have, have seen these guys and they want to write to them. And you can see it's very patriotic. But of course, these letters from non-family, just supporters, were actually getting in the way. And there's a letter. Um, what, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It just starts. You didn't write anything, which they probably did. The, the letter just didn't get there. So I want you to tell me if everything's all right, OK? Um, Look, I want dad to know, you know, not to worry. Tell Oscarito, little Oscar, tell Oscarito to write. And if he can't, then teach him. But write a lot because here a letter is worth a lot. And it's the, diff the difference between disappointment and a smile. Tell the whole street to write. If dad can send a letter, tell him I'm even missus shouting. I hope he's well. Tell him not to worry about me. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be OK. And I'll return home safe, as you say. Jose Luis. Jose Luis is his brother, we find out in this. And he goes on, he says, look, Jose Luis, Jose is here. Now, this gives an idea, this next bit here. These were all guys from the neighboring streets. This is like a British World War I pals battalion. As, you know, if the battalion got, got badly shut up, everyone in the street lost people. And you can tell the amount of friends, this other friend, Jose, who he sees, all these guys knew each other. He says, uh, Jose is here. And I went to look for him. And he told me that Daniel's here too. And one day I went to find him in the regiment. And he said he could smell me all the way from Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires! I almost went crazy. But of course, I'm happy. What he's saying, these guys, had most of them had never changed their uniforms since they'd been there. They, they only had one uniform. And it was normally a summer uniform for the summers in northern Argentina, which is subtropical. And now they're put in... But, virtually you know virtually the antarctic and you pretty much had to wait for a man to die to steal his summer uniform to put it over yours you know and they stank they they couldn't stand the, the smells of themselves but this guy and we don't even really get his name i don't think where it's terrible really he is uh he's he's trying to make his brother laugh and then he's begging for a letter and then he's trying to make him laugh again and he's begging for another letter you know he's saying um is, I, I miss you a lot. Even when we fight, let, let's be honest, I'm waiting for a letter from you. Every other arsehole in the world has got at least 20 letters. 
I have none. Here, letters are so important. He's asking about his family and the dog and things like that. And then suddenly, I haven't received a letter from you. Don't you miss me? Don't you care how I am? Right, please, I'm waiting for a letter from you. He goes on a joke. I want you to tell me how are the girls who smoke? And I, it didn't make any sense. You know, I was smoking. And I had to go and ask a, uh, an Argentine friend of that generation. He said, no, he said, the girls who smoke in back in those days, you wouldn't hear it now, but they were um, promiscuous girls, should we say. And uh, he's trying to get his brother to laugh. You know, if this makes you smile, I hope you answer me, man. A big hug. He's asking about his friends and he just keeps saying, please send a letter. My friend Richard is here. He's waiting for a letter. Please write in the, constantly the whole letter. Please, 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 someone talk to me. Now, this is a guy, why this strikes me as important. This is a man, so he's mentioned his friend Jose and Daniel and his friend Richard, who are all there. Well, I'm, uh, Richard, he calls him Richard, which is normally his name is Ricardo, but he's sort of playing with the name a little bit. Those are at least three friends, and there's, there's bound to be more friends that he knows. He's surrounded by friends and countrymen. And he's lonely. He's alone. The, he wants his family. This is such an important thing to understand. Like I said, and I've said before, you're, you, you know, if you've got veterans listening to your show, they will know the, the importance and the power of a letter from home just saying, you know, I, I love you. I miss you. Don't worry. Everything's OK. We know you're going to be you're going to do your job. Anything. It doesn't even matter what they say, really, you know, um, so long as it was something, something, you know, something from home. Um, and it wasn't a Dear John letter, which sadly quite a few of these veterans did get Dear John oh, letters gosh. while they were up. That wasn't so good. But the need to, to have these letters, and it really brings at home how personal they are. The very last letter in this, it ends with this wonderful thing, and it, it just had to be the last one. The man signs off. And he just says at the end, don't forget me. And that's a very powerful thing. It was like a, a wonderful way to end the book. And of course, with these letters, one of the great things is they came out in that order. I haven't swapped them around to make it look good. They just came. It's like one of these things that's just made to be. And don't forget me. In Argentina, the big slogan they use, Parano Olvidar, but, you know, but don't forget or don't forget me. That literally said it, you know, I, I wish this could be translated into Argentine Spanish. It will be. Um, but of course, there were issues with Argentine people reading other people's mail. Um, it's a wonderful ending to it. And, you know, these men didn't have that solace. Their solace was their letters from home, which they weren't getting. Um, and we touch on that in the book. And it's, it's frustrating. It's, you know, it, 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 it's hurtful. It's painful. You, as you suddenly identify with that, because we all can, that's when you realise that it's a book about humanity, that it isn't about British versus Argentine. It's just men uh, at the end of the day and that we're all the same. And that, that's one of the wonderful things about this book is you can you slip into the other uniform without knowing it. This 74-day war, there is so much in it. It's one of the least understood of all which have been fought, you write here in Last Letters from Stanley. We get 
so many stories, so many things that I could just flow out here, but I don't want to spoil the book for everybody watching and listening, but pick it up. You, you talk about the hunger. You talk about being dumped far from home without supplies. Another familiar story in war. Every nation has a story like that. Some of these Argentine soldiers are so hungry, they attack a horse with knives because they're, they're so hungry to eat the horse. They Another time, one of the letters describes, we were fortunate to, to be able to snatch a sheep and eat the sheep. This is a small little town, Stanley. And so they are not prepared to sustain all of these troops that suddenly just show up with one uniform and no food. These are all stories here, Ricky, that are that are in your book. And I know that you, you're willing to give the whole thing away for free because you're so passionate <laughs> about it. But I do want people to get the reading experience, not just because it puts a, a few pounds in your bank account, but because it is really, really transformative. It's, it's more than enjoyable. It's something that makes you see this battle. As an author who doesn't use words lightly in a casual flourish, who really cares about the belief and bravery, brotherhood and betrayal that you write about here in Last Letters from Stanley, how do you hope that American viewers, British viewers, people who don't have a stake in the Argentine future will view the men who arrived at the island, who invaded the island on the orders of their dictatorship how do you hope we'll see them differently after we finish hearing their voices in last letters from Stanley? Great question. <laughs> Thank you. It was something when I wrote Casualty, I was very conscious of the fact that the Argentines were to us were always these men in black, you know, who came in the night. We never knew who they were. And of course, Casualty sort of begins this idea that we suddenly realize that they're, they're people, you know, just like us. Last is from Stanley, um, what I like about it, it, we're not glorifying anything to do with the war or, or what happened or even the cause behind it. You know, one of the biggest problems I've faced is that I've had a few British people say, what, why are you running about, about the enemy for? Make our guys look good. And I'm like, our guys don't look good if they're just rolling over a bunch of kids here, which didn't happen anyway. It was certainly a worry of mine that, that friends in the Falkland Islands would say, don't make them look good. In the Falkland Islands, of course, Argentina currently, even to this day, still maintains this a very obsessive rhetoric. They still want the Falkland Islands. They believe that they should be Argentine, you know, and I could stand there all the live long day and I could give you the full history and I could tell you that those islands have never belonged to Argentina. You know, they we first claimed them in 1594, 222 years before Argentina existed, to an Argentine, this doesn't matter. And you can certainly, you can look into that history by all means. Uh, if you wish to, by the way, if anyone wants to look into the history of the Falkland Islands, uh, the Falklands Timeline by Roger Lawton, it comes up sometimes online as Falklands Wars. It is a free resource and it has everything ever done on the Falklands. I always mention it, I think in, in both my Falklands books, look at that. It, it will take me forever to go into. But why should someone read this? What would they get out of it? I think the point is, once you slip out of the, the mindset of, you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers. Once you slip out of that, I think you start to understand the war. We do not in the UK understand the war from the Argentine side. Many, we don't even know everything of course that happened on our side but once you understand what the enemy were doing it gives you a much better perspective 
on exactly what was happening. This is not, as you said earlier, it's not just a bunch of letters. This is the whole war told by Argentine veterans, not just these guys, but all the men around them. You've, you've seen the level of work that went into it and the amount of, of checking I've had to do with, with so many Argentine veterans. This is the first book basically from the Argentines in the English language uh, that tells the war for 32 years. And the, the, the previous one was, you know, that, that was a long time ago. They were, they were officers, not regular soldiers. They were officers on a base. Um, the historian Martin Middlebrook could only sit there on a base. These guys were serving officers. They would come in, read a statement. He wasn't allowed to ask them to expand on that or to ask a follow-up question. They read a statement, he recorded it, wrote it down, thank you, next guy in. I know this because I have many Argentine friends who were in those interviews. Now these are just men, not just all these years later telling a story, which of course changes over time in your mind, but these are men who are we're comparing and contrasting what people said then, perhaps what they're saying now. We're getting the whole flavor of the war, what it was like to be Argentine. And also if you, know, you want to, keep that if someone can't get out of that mindset of good guy bad guy at least know what it's like to be that side you know where a lot of them they did the Argentines genuinely believed what they were doing they didn't go yeah let's go and you know let's go and sort of uh, oppress a, a peaceful farming community or something won't that be fun no they didn't um they were people like you like I thrown into a war against you know one of the best military forces in the world and I love that what I love about the Argentine side they're very emotional they tell stories better than most people an Argentine story is incredible they blur the lines between truth and fiction they would rather get a good story out but it's it's a very important thing you know they they are passionate storytellers as am I I really enjoy it and they'll, they'll tell you things that we don't get, you know. So um, I think most of us would, if we think back to our grandfathers or grandmothers or what have you, who fought in conflicts. And I think most people will, will get this. And most people wish they spent more time with, say, their grandfather who fought in the war, wish they'd asked him questions, wish they'd listened more. Um, or, um, I mean, I didn't know my grandfather. My, my grandfather fought in, in Suez and in Korea, um, and he passed away before I was born. But I've heard how he would recount stories. And he always made the wars sound funny. Soldiers, you know, I've spent a lot of time with, with Normandy and D-Day veterans, and it doesn't sound like there's any shooting going on. It's like a big sort of lad's toy, you know, and they tell you the funny stories because they're hiding those emotions. Argentines don't hide their emotions and you get a really great rounded story out of these guys. Um, they're very, very honest in, the, in their hearts, if you see what I mean. They'll, they'll tell you truthfully and honestly what they think, how they see it, how they perceive it. Um, a British letter might go, oh, don't worry, we're doing our bit. You know, they don't. These guys are very, very honest with what they're saying. This is true warfare. This is war could be anyone anywhere in any conflict it could be you know it, it it could be world war one world war two it could be vietnam it could be the gulf or it could be the falklands war um 
I think veterans are something that, that are so topical. Veterans are so reachable, you know, and, and everyone knows a veteran or has been a veteran or studies these people. These guys are incredible veterans. For me, I think everyone's going to want casualty. First casualty is just the Falcon's War book, the runaway success. People pick that up and they become Falcon's War fanatics overnight. I'd argue that Last Letters from Stanley is a better book. It's a better all-round book. It's got so much great stuff. Typical me, I've slipped in quite a few secrets, things that you're not supposed to know, um, things that have only ever been hinted at before. Of course, as, as we discussed in our last interview, Dean, when you pick up a rookie D flip, you know you're getting, you're going to get your money as well. <laughs> and there's a lot of really, really fascinating stuff in this, including, of course, the, the USA's involvement um, and a, a lot that isn't known besides that. So I think, I don't know, it, it's an incredible book. You don't have to be into Argentina. You don't have to agree with what Argentina did, but you will certainly develop the one thing that most people don't, which is a wonderfully rounded idea of the war. You read this book, you will understand the war from any other perspective you pick it up from. And no one else has done this. And I'm, I'm so, so proud of it, as you can tell, <laughs> because, you know, and I, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Of course, off screen, we've had a lot of conversations about it as well. Well, you have a right to be proud of your book, Ricky Phillips. I hope people will pick up both books. But today, especially this look at Last Letters from Stanley, the unpublished Argentine battle for the Falklands, because it is such a unique work of history. It's a unique look here. A conflict just 39 years ago, one so important today, which we discussed in our last interview, if viewers and listeners haven't heard that. It is really something that's topical, and we can get that perspective. It's just so precious to be able to do that and to now know these men of Argentina as more than just the baddies. Understood, they had families back home, they were hungry too. They had a government that sent them into a war that they told them, hey, it'll be easy. We don't even need to give you a second uniform to change into. This was a, a tough time, very nuanced war. Ricky, thank you so much for sharing their stories with us today. Not just sharing them, but the respectful way that you did it so that we don't feel like we're peeping through a keyhole when we look and we read last letters from Stanley, but we feel like we're really honoring their sacrifices. I wish you the best of luck with both your books. And I can't wait for that next Ricky D. Phillips publication. Thank you very, very much. Dean. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. And may, may we come back and do it again. We've, uh, I've really, really enjoyed both interviews so far. May we have many more. Thank you. Again, the book is Last Letters from Stanley the unpublished Argentine battle for the Falklands. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy of this book or Ricky's first book called The First Casualty by visiting the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Every time you buy a book through us, you're not making me rich, but you are helping to keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I have to thank Ricky D. Phillips for joining us again for bringing his passion for both sides of this conflict, for the men who fought and died, for a patch of land that many of us in the U.S. certainly had never even heard of before. I want to encourage you to visit his military history blog, which is called Making History, and you can find both of us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Plus, you can find me on our new YouTube channel. It's still pretty new. I'm still getting 
back to my roots of television production and trying to put on some real interesting videos. And certainly the Falklands War is worth watching. There's, there's a lot of video from it and it adds so much to the experience of the viewer. At least I hope it did today. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this program. Until our next trip into the past together, on behalf of Ricky D. Phillips and the men of the Argentine military, as well as those on the British side, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in 